Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is Season 3, Part 11, Back in Town. What's going on in Twin Peaks? And there is a hell of a lot going on here. It's a mile a minute. So we're going to discuss these by uh, organized by subplot, by the different stories, talk about the scenes um, under that rubric, and starting with the one that's introduced the earliest in Twin Peaks. For the Cooper investigation, Hawk and Frank are looking up the location um, of the the coordinates that they got from Major Briggs in that little note, figuring out where they're going to go to, uh, you know, investigate these clues. Hawk shows Frank Truman a map, a big homemade map that I believe was actually made by the actor uh, himself, by uh, Michael Horse. And on that map, the, he shows them all these different symbols and explains what they mean. We'll discuss that more in the Lodge Lore section. The Log Lady then calls. And as she's speaking to them, she says, there's fire where you are going. And, uh, of course, they look at the map and see the fire on the map, and you know, Frank seems a little concerned. I love the iconography of this map, by the way. Uh, uh, just the way it's able to distill Twin Peaks into these little iconographic symbols is so cool to me. Um, I, you know, the, there's always so much immaterial stuff going on in Twin Peaks where... You're getting at a certain vibe or an uncanniness, but it also has this these these great visual motifs that, of course, are you know always represented in the packaging and the promotion of it and things like that. But to see it on the show itself developed this way was so cool, and of course, it gives us the opportunity to see things like corn, which aren't featured all that much in season three, but are still clearly still very important to the mythology of the series. The biggest Twin Peaks story of this episode is everything to do with Becky. This is really her episode. We see her in her trailer screaming at the phone, yelling. She's obviously furious at Stephen, and she calls her mom and begs her to bring a car. So Shelly flees the diner, races to the trailer park, and then her daughter storms out, grabs the keys from her, and jumps in the car. And of course, Shelly sees that Becky has a gun and is freaked out, so she jumps on the hood of the car and tries to prevent her from driving away, and uh, Becky just turns the car and, you know, rather ruthlessly <laughs> throws her mother off of the hood by, by turning it so sharply, and then she drives off to her destination. Carl shows up, he helps Shelly out, and they drive off, and inside the van, he's got like a CB radio, and he has uh, Shelly calling, well, first she calls Norma on her own cell phone, at the diner tell, telling her what happened and then Carl calls the sheriff's station and asks for Bobby and this is the first time we've gotten any sort of connection between Bobby and Shelley but we'll talk about that in a little bit so she tells Bobby that uh, Becky raced off with a gun and then we see Becky storming into this apartment building racing up the stairs yelling at a door banging on it and the neighbor says, they're gone, they're not there, and then sees the gun and freaks out and goes back in her room. And a furious Becky fires a bunch of shots into the door, yelling And as, as she does so. She's just full of anger. This is a great Lynchian anger sequence. He, he loves to have characters who are just driven by that emotion, and uh, he really digs into it here. Later at the diner, the Briggs are all meeting together, and I should mention earlier that we see Maggie at the switchboard at the sheriff's station getting call after call after call about uh, gunfire at this apartment building. So clearly this is a big deal in the town. Bobby's able to get her, I guess, not arrested, whatever the opposite of being arrested is, 
and he has sort of a stern talking to her with Shelly, but they're all also really worried about her, and they let her know that. And Becky goes back and forth on Stephen. One second she's saying she wants to leave him, then she's making excuses for him, and Bobby says that he'll lend her money, but the next time that Stephen steps out of line, he's going to take him in. So he knows about the stuff going on with him, the probably the drugs and other stuff and obviously not thrilled this guy's with her daughter his daughter but you know he is her husband and he's going to give him kind of one last chance and uh, so this is a nice moment with the whole family there and we see Norma watching closely and at one point she kind of exchanges a look with Becky and Becky apologizes profusely to Shelley saying she didn't mean to hurt her and we see that she just kind of let her rage overtake her and get her out of control and that this has probably happened before and unfortunately you know may very well happen again as well i love the sound design during becky's freak out it's really hard to describe so i'm just going to play a little bit of it here <laughs> I also think it's interesting Maggie smiles while she's patching Shelley through to Bobby. Uh, there's a sense almost in which the whole town kind of wants them to get back together or something. Maybe that's reading too much into a very small moment, but, uh, you know, it, it's a reflection of we, the viewers, who've been waiting and waiting and waiting to see what the deal is with, with Shelley and Bobby. And later when they're all meeting at the diner, we think, oh, okay, maybe they are still together then. Maybe that's that's what's going on here. But then, of course, Red comes and she just runs out and embraces him. We'll talk about that in a second. I love how Amanda Seyfried's reactions in the diner scene just evoke season one Bobby. I've talked about this before in a few different venues, but it's something I just noticed while watching it. And, and I think uh, I, I think some others may have, I think the Diane podcast may have uh, mentioned this as well, but there's just a sense in which she's not just her mother's daughter, but her father's daughter. And there's like little mannerisms and snorts and expressions and rolled eyes that just call, recall Dana Ashbrook. I almost feel like Amanda Seyfried went back and watched season one and picked up a few things. And uh, it's, it's just a great little touch and a surprise in a way, because I think there's a lot of work done to tie the character to Shelley specifically, because she's with this bad guy and, you know, an abusive relationship and all of this stuff. And of course, Shelley had her own experiences with guns and, uh, wayward lovers or or you know whatever the case may be so that's there too but but I think it's interesting to note the way she that she does reflect Bobby as well there's also a sense especially when Norma is exchanging looks with Becky and then Becky kind of breaks and embraces her mom and her whole attitude switches this this idea of like environment having an influence um, in this case it's a particular person with Norma but she kind of embodies that whole energy of the double R, that warmth and comfort and reassurance. And I think you see this a lot in Twin Peaks and Return and Lynch in general, where uh, the environment has a very strong impact on uh, shaping the way people act, the way that they behave and are. And uh, I, I think the only kind of um, reversal of that in The Return is Dougie Cooper, where it's the opposite. He comes into this kind of cold, sterile, hostile universe of las vegas and with his energy he's able to really reverse and change a lot of that until by the end of his stay it's now this positive warm happy goofy place so uh that's an interesting change up there but i think in this case you see the opposite of course the environment can only go so far and quickly you know a bullet transgresses that that comfort and that warmth so even here twin peaks is vulnerable another storyline intersecting is shelly and red red shows up at the window knocks on it shelly 
runs out, leaves her daughter and her husband or ex-husband behind, races out into the street and embraces him. And they're all excited to see each other later. And then she comes back in and Bobby is kind of looking on horrified the whole time. Becky looks stunned. I'm not sure if this is the first time she's realized her mom is seeing someone else or she's just taking in her father's reaction, but it's a very interesting moment. Norma doesn't really seem approving either. And the only question I have about all of this is, what's with the ring around uh, Shelly's neck? It looks like a wedding band, and I'm wondering why Why would she be wearing that? Is she married to Red? And like, I don't know. I, can't, I, I don't think so, but uh, is it Bobby's ring that for some reason she's still got on? I'm not sure if other people have thoughts on this, but I'd be interested to know. Another storyline that's obviously, well, there's a few storylines that are related that intersect with this. One is the Double R franchise. We see Norma doing her bills again as Shelly runs out and later when she calls. So, you know, this is, I think, the third or fourth, third time, I think, that we've seen Norma just working away at bills at the diner. So it's something they keep really wanting to reinforce that this is something that's all consuming for her. As far as life in Fat Trout Trailer Park goes, that's mostly tied into the Becky storyline, but we do get a cool bit with Carl. He whistles for a van. It's a great moment. Yeah, I saw a tweet just today calling him kind of like, you know, the superhero with his like bat signal or whatever, <laughs> making his call for the van. For other characters and storylines, we get a bit of the hit-and-run uh, storyline this episode where Miriam crawls out of the woods as these boys are playing ball. They're, throw they're playing catch, I should say. They're throwing a baseball back and forth, and one rolls into the street, and when the boy goes to get it, and I believe this boy is played by Mark Frost's son, he sees this bloodied woman crawling out of the bushes, and this is yet another callback, I think, to a very strong memory of Lynch's from when he was a child when he saw a naked woman a bruised naked woman staggering down the street and him and his brother were upset by it and this is something that he included in Blue Velvet and now he's including it in Twin Peaks as well where this time he's you know sort of focused on the aspect of the kids seeing this. Another storyline that intersects is Stephen and Gersten. This is really our first introduction to their relationship. And, uh, you know, if you look quickly or you don't look at the credits, you probably don't even realize it's Gersten Hayward, the girl who was uh, dressed up as the fairy playing the piano back in the season two premiere in 1990. And this is now Alicia Witt grown and she's here having an affair with Stephen. And in this moment, they don't even talk. They just look kind of intimidated and frightened. So it's an interesting reversal of the previous episode where Stephen was threatening Becky and seemed really dangerous and violent and she looked frightened and cowed and now suddenly she's in the power position and he's frightened and intimidated off in the corner somewhere. And then finally there are uh, some random storylines this week. The big one is Bobby dealing with an incident uh, at the intersection near the Double R Diner where a gun is fired through the window of the Double R. He races outside and he finds this family yelling at each other in the street. There's like, looks like a hunter, dad and son are dressed up as, you know, in camo. And the wife is not. And she's yelling at the husband because he left a gun in the car that the little boy then accidentally fired through the window. And so Bobby's trying to handle all this. Meanwhile, somebody's honking and screaming behind them. So he goes over to them. It's a woman in a car and she's screaming about how they're going to be late for somewhere. And then a child rises up from the passenger seat and starts driveling vomit all over the car, and the woman just keeps screaming, ah, nah, nah. <laughs> it's, to me, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I don't know why, but it makes me laugh every time. And uh, so this is a, 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 this is a great little sequence that really caps off the whole intense first half of the episode, starting with the first moment where the 
Miriam is crawling out of the woods right up to this moment. It's like tense the whole time. There's a few moments of slight, I don't even know if I'd call it relaxation, but, you know, uh, lesser tension maybe, where like the FBI is looking around at the crime scene and something hasn't quite happened yet or is just about to, or when the Briggs are in the diner and, you know, they're kind of, they're all, their nerves are all on edge, but at that, that exact moment, some violent situation isn't happening yet, and then the bullet comes through, so it's like almost non-stop the whole time, and this caps all of that off. John Thorne had some interesting observations about this. He felt like it was almost Bobby's dream in a way, like this was an incident meant to sort of reflect Bobby, not necessarily in a literal way, like his Cooper's dream theory, but just in sort of a general thematic sense that seeing this family and this echoing between the father and son where they have the same pose is just sort of this idea of families repeating their mistakes and their troubles, you know, amplifying down the generation. And uh, perhaps also with the woman and the sick girl in the car, this is sort of helplessness in the face of the, this, uh, the, the, the children, you know, uh, I don't want to say acting up necessarily because the girl's just getting sick, but you know, the children, uh, having something bad happening with them and the, the parents being kind of helpless in that regard. So that's an interesting thought. I think with all of this stuff, with anything trying to figure out quote unquote, the meaning of Lynch, I think you almost kind of have to do two things. One is first, you have to think about what makes emotional sense to Lynch. Cause I think he's making these decisions based on what feels right. And He's talked in interviews about having a reason that makes sense to him, but also that you can't quite put into words. So I think the second thing you have to do as you're doing this is kind of figure out, okay, so is there like an articulable concept behind what's making emotional sense to him? Or is it just something you kind of feel and you can't quite put into words? I don't know. And the other, not quite a storyline, but you know, Jesse has some moments of comic relief in this episode. First of all, he's there at the shooting saying, you know, uh, he was at Big Ed's and he heard a gun go off like this is a great discovery he's made when clearly Bobby is there dealing with the situation. And then the other one, which is, you know, I guess the closest we have to a little mini story for Jesse is he really wants to show Frank Truman his car. He's really excited about this. And uh, Frank is like, maybe in the morning, Jesse. <laughs> it's such an amusing moment. Uh, the one, you know, we get to see Jesse kind of acting bizarre in several sequences three or four throughout the show, and this is the one time we get a little personal touch of him uh, still acting bizarre. A general observation about all the Twin Peaks stuff is the vibe of the town in this season is, is interesting, especially having just visited there and gotten a lot of the sense of, like, you know, the old season, seasons one and two, well, while spending time there and that kind of warm, slightly melancholy, kind of beautiful feeling of, like, the foggy environment and and going from place to place to where it all felt very connected um so to watch this episode again and see the sense that season three brings to the town of twin peaks i think there's kind of like a mildly depressed air about the town in this season i think where uh, it's it's it may be still melancholy but not in such a romantic way it's more weary a little more of a tired sense to it even when it's a happy moment in the town it's not really a joyful energy it's like a relief everybody just you know feels older the younger characters feel in a way almost more confused and lost and uh the, it just it does it feels like a weary town in some ways and that's not necessarily a bad thing in some ways it provides relief during the series where we're in some intense situation, we come back to Twin Peaks, we're able to relax a little. I know people had a reading of, like, now Twin Peaks is just this totally dark, violent place. It's no longer protected or whatever. And 
that I don't that doesn't seem true to me. I think there are a lot of moments of sort of comfort and maybe even lightness in the town, but there's always a sort of a hangover to it. There are a couple pretty big returning original series storylines in this episode. Uh, well, one of them's a bit of a stretch, but we'll mention it. Uh, the one that is definitely returning that was introduced in the pilot of Twin Peaks and is now back somewhat in commission is Shelley and Bobby. Actually, this was originally the Shelley, Bobby, and Leo storyline in seasons one and two. And even in Firewalk with me, where the three of them aren't connected, we do see all three of those characters uh, at various points. Um, Bobby talking to Leo, Shelley with Leo, and we don't get the hint that Shelley and Bobby are together, but, you know, um, they're, I guess it's, their, their relationships to Leo are somewhat fraught, so that still connects them. So that's the last time we saw it, ten entries ago, and now it's back, finally, in uh, season three where we learn that Shelly and Bobby are implicitly divorced. I don't think they actually say at any point, but obviously she goes off and hugs the guy. Like, a lot of people saw this and were all excited, like, yes, they're still together and all of that, but it certainly seems that they are not. So uh, that's kind of a sad outcome, at, at least at this point, for that storyline uh, that these characters who had all their ups and downs in the original series survived Leo uh, literally, I mean, he tried to kill both of them multiple times, at least twice, and uh, you know they they seem to have wound up together. They have a daughter, so that's something. But uh, the romance is apparently gone, although we can still see it in Bobby's eyes. Uh, and then one more storyline, kind of wrapped up in all of this, is uh, Ed and Norma, where we don't re- we don't really get any of that this episode, but we do hear Ed's name for the first time in the whole series, if I'm not mistaken. That's when Jesse mentions that he was down at Big Ed's gas farm, the other deputy. I mean, I guess that opens the possibility of, of having something with Norman Ed at this point, but I guess that is that is pretty vague. Um, we'll call it a returning storyline for now, and if it returns even more so, maybe we'll make mention of it. But that's back also after a 10-entry absence. Last time we saw it was in The Missing Pieces, specifically. It's not really in the film Firewalk with me, but in The Missing Pieces, Ed comes in with Nadine, and she runs out, and Ed and Norma have that sequence in the car where they're listening to the radio and all of that so that was the last time we saw that couple we still haven't seen them in any sense but uh you know there's there's another one we can root for or worry about in terms of if they're still well they they weren't quite together at the end of season two even so who knows storylines that have disappeared at this point four episodes of absence so we're going to stop kind of mentioning their absence because they've been pretty consistently absent are uh, the Lauren-Ben storyline, uh, another Renault in the Roadhouse, Jean-Michel, that we saw in the season three premiere, and then we had that scene with him talking on the phone. We don't know if that'll come back as a storyline. Frank's family life, both him with Harry and his wife, we haven't had any uh, mention of that in a few episodes, which is sort of surprising given how she was set up in two episodes in a row. And then the question of Richard's father, if Mr. C was uh if he raped audrey um if that was if richard was the result of that there was that hint of that in part seven and we haven't had any reference to that since so all of those storylines for now are off the radar but uh, they may come back that's it for this episode please rate review and subscribe on apple Podcasts. you can also support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies tomorrow's episode 
is going to cover the mythology of part 11. Uh, in part 10, we didn't really have much lodge lore to discuss and uh, just kind of brushed that off really while discussing what was going on in Twin Peaks. But part 11 is a different story. We have much more to dig into here and we're going to do that. Mm-hmm.